This is COD 101, Conceptualization, Identification, and Treatment of Co-Occurring Disorders. Once again, my name is Andrew Kurtz. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist. My pronouns are he, him, and his. Clinical specialist with UCLA Integrated Substance Abuse Programs. I will tell you a little bit about what we do, mostly as a segue to talking about the, the continuing education units that you all are probably interested in. Um, and, and then we'll get into some of the uh, overview for today's training. All right, let's get into what we're going to be talking about. Uh, we're going to be doing a few different things related to co-occurring disorders today. Um, as I said, we'll be doing some different interactive activities. I, there's a ton of information in this training. There's way more in this this packet of slides that I could reasonably go through in three hours. So you have more slides in your packet than are in my slide deck. Uh, the reason being that a lot of that is supplemental to what we're going to be talking about. It's there for your benefit that you can look at that a little bit later on if you want to add to what we're talking about here. Um, but we're going to try to cover as much about COD as we can. We're going to talk about prevalence of co-occurring disorders just to give us a, a starting point to think about how uh, how rampant COD issues are. We're going to talk about a foundational understanding of COD related to um, alcohol and drug use and how it impacts an individual neurologically. And then we'll be talking about some different approaches to conceptualization and assessment that translates into use of evidence-based methods for addressing COD issues across the lifespan. We'll certainly talk about different mental health conditions that co-occur with substance use, and we'll try to conceptualize the challenges that are presented when an individual comes in with both substance use and mental health issues present. I'm going to be coming at this conversation from the standpoint of, of describing substance use issues, but layering on top of that how mental health issues can kind of complicate the treatment aspect of co-occurring disorders. Um, you all are probably intimately familiar with uh, how challenging this type of work can be. Uh, hopefully by the end of today, we'll, we'll have some strategies, some different approaches for thinking about engaging individuals differently, thinking about getting them motivated to be in treatment, uh, and maybe using some of the components of what we're talking about here for psychoeducation or educational components with clients. When I think about the peer support specialist piece of that team or the case manager piece, um, you often have a, a very different relationship with the client than I might as a mental health therapist uh, and being able to bring in some of this this educational information while you're creating that relationship I think can uh, it can often be really helpful uh, to let the person know why it is that you're talking about what it is that you're discussing a little bit of my background really quickly that I'll try to integrate as much as I can into uh, some of the stories that I'll be telling I, I've been licensed for uh, almost Ooh, uh, over a decade, I've been doing this work for over 50, almost 15 years. Um, a lot of my work prior to doing this at UCLA was in community mental health. Um, I did a few different things. I was a program director over an access center. Um, I was a program manager over wraparound and FSP. Um, I've done research at UCLA on first episode schizophrenia. Um, a lot of my focus has been on enhancing trauma-informed care as well. And so that, that's kind of what I bring. That's my perspective when I, I talk about co-occurring disorders, and I'll bring that into the training as much as I can. Like I said, I'll share some of those stories, but um, I, I don't presume that my stories are interesting to all of you, and I'd much rather hear about your kind of client scenarios and how that's relevant to what we're talking about here. But uh, feel free to bring that up as we're going through this, and let's jump into what we'll be discussing for today. Um, 
if any of you took the substance use disorder, the SUD 101 session, I think that was last week, uh, just show of hands if anybody did, uh, the SUD 101 session covers a little bit of what we're talking about. Haiti, I see you. Good. Okay. So you're going to be familiar with some of this information. Um, we're we're going to touch upon that. Uh, so you're going to be familiar with some of this, this foundational information that we're going to be talking about. And, and then we'll translate the substance use components into more of a conversation about mental health. But uh, we'll try to build on some of that SUD 101 conversation. Uh, and draw in some of what you may have learned from that last week as we go forward. But we're going to start by thinking about what are some of the principles for intervening with consumers with COD? What is it that it's important, is important to focus on, and how do I structure kind of my own thinking as I'm going in and working with someone? One of the first things is that I think it's important to integrate substance use and mental health treatment. Uh, this is sometimes easier said than done. Oftentimes the way that you see this type of care is, is highly siloed, that you'll see mental health individuals focusing just on mental health. You'll see substance use individuals focusing just on substance use uh, and, and not for a, a lack of trying, but potentially that we focus so much on one aspect of this over the other, maybe in our training, maybe in our supervision, that there's often a bit of anxiety around what is my scope of practice? What can I do? What can I not do? And how do I find the, the median point between those two? Um, I'll think about that scope of practice consideration as we move forward in today's training, but really, whether you're in mental health or substance use as your primary role, you're going to see people with these co-occurring issues. You're going to see individuals who have whatever it is that you're not necessarily focused on treating. And so even if it's not in your scope of practice uh, to do something like in-depth trauma work, there's still a component of being able to recognize that and, and triage it in a way that helps manage the person's discomfort while linking them to services that I think is really critical, especially when you're talking about a more intensive service uh, like FSP. Integrated treatment specialists should be trained in both substance use and serious mental illness. So whatever your role is, you should have a degree of comfort talking about serious mental illness as well as substance use issues and how they intersect. We want to think about treating co-occurring disorders in a stage-wise fashion. So you can think about uh, the trans-theoretical model, the stages of change model, if you're familiar with the, uh, Prochaska and DiClemente's work. Where is someone in the, those stages of change? How do I orient my services specifically to where they're at? Um, we actually we have a resource. We actually have a stages of change handout PDF that talks about specific interventions at each stage. So if somebody's in pre-contemplation, what should I as the provider be thinking about? And it's, it's a nice kind of color-coded, uh, double-sided handout that we can send to you all as a PDF uh, when we send our follow-up email. And, and Shannon, if I forget to bring that up, remind me after this. Uh, it's a nice handout to use. Uh, I often have it on my wall when I'm, I'm doing like assessments or just meeting with somebody for the first time because it reminds me that there's a lot that you can be overwhelmed with when you first meet with someone in session. Slowing down just enough to think about, all right, where is this person in their readiness to change? Where are they in terms of, of what they're giving to me, in terms of what they know, uh, what they're willing to consider in treatment? That really helps to orient me to not 
get ahead of where they are, to not outpace them and potentially lose them in that engagement stage or in that engagement phase. So um, I really like MI and CBT as starting points for substance use treatment, as well as for co-occurring disorder treatment. Um, some of you uh, may ha have been involved in MI training, CBT trainings. We, we have an MI training coming up soon, I think. Uh, and I think CBT was offered earlier, uh, maybe even yesterday, this week. These two evidence-supported treatments are a great starting point to be able to manage early stage challenges that come up in treatment. So we're talking not just about presenting symptoms that might be occurring, things like difficulty attending and concentrating. Uh, you might have somebody who isn't really focused on what you want to focus on in treatment. You might have issues with engagement, issues with motivation, uh, confusion about why you're even coming to them and talking to them about services. I find that MI and CBT are useful to help somebody understand what treatment is about, but also it helps to keep me in a place as a provider where I'm not overwhelming the client, where I can kind of incrementalize my interventions so that I'm really foundationally starting in a place where I want to get to know this person. I want to engage with them. I want to build rapport and I want to give them just a little bit so that they might start to recognize the benefit of treatment, so that they might start to have some degree of success, or at the very least, if that's not the case, that they understand that I'm going to be doing the same thing every time I meet with them. That structure, that consistency, that predictability that CBT affords us uh, really helps to manage the functional impairments that come along with co-occurring disorders. And we'll talk a little bit more about that as we move through today's session. But I, I really like MI and I really like CBT. I think they dovetail really nicely together um, to not only help providers feel a little bit more confident in managing the whole host of, of different challenges that come up when you're meeting with somebody with co-occurring disorders, uh, but it really does set the stage for the client as well um, to show that you're, you're not going to come in, you're not going to be judgmental, you're not going to tell them what they have to do and all the consequences for not doing that, but really you're there to, to meet them where they are. And so we'll talk about practical skills of how to do that uh, once we get to the end of today's training. Um, multiple service modalities are available, meaning we shouldn't just have one approach to treatment. We shouldn't be thinking about treatment as just one thing. So we wanna make sure that we're not just thinking about treatment as one thing. It's not just individual mental health focused on the client. That's a component of it, but I, I want to think about uh, different services that we can bring to bear without overwhelming the client. How do I make sure that I'm truly delivering good integrated care, uh, good integrated and coordinated care, thinking about group services, individual services, family services, case management, maybe linking to different community groups or um, different behavioral improvement groups, skill development, life skill groups. Um, all of that, I think, is part of ensuring that we're successful when we're thinking about co-occurring disorder treatment. Uh, and then medication services are essential. They can be integrated and coordinated with um, the services that we've talked about up to this point. And so that's what I'm thinking about when I consider how am I approaching COD treatment. I want to try to make sure that I'm checking these boxes, that I'm, I'm corresponding with these seven different principles. Now we're going to do our, our first poll everywhere activity. So I will type in a word here and I will put complicated.
which is the most common response that is coming up. Again, if your response is already on here, feel free to still add it because what I want to get a sense of is in this word cloud, what are the most common responses to treatment of co-occurring disorders? Uh, so continue to add in your responses there. I again, if you can't see this, if it's not showing up for you, you can always add your response into the chat. When we think about treatment of co-occurring disorders, and if you're having any issues with the poll everywhere, just let us know and we're happy to help you with that. So you see a couple of those words starting to jump out. It's complicated, certainly. Um, it's related health, mental health, um, I think is probably the one that, that's coming up. Um, I imagine those are probably together. Uh, so we want to think about mental health, substance use. Yeah, it's hard, necessary, good multidimensional. Great. Simultaneously, complex, nonlinear. Excellent. Yeah. Time, uh, I imagine that's probably associated with something else, time-consuming maybe, uh, related to complexity. Good. Yeah, continue to add those responses if you want to. Anything else that you think of when you think about treatment of co-occurring disorders? Um, and we'll, we'll see where we end up with this. Uh, I, I don't imagine that any of the others are going to be jumping out as much as complicated or complex. I, I, I think that that's the one that tends to come up the most when uh, when we do this activity is that uh, most frequently people will say that that co-occurring disorder treatment is complicated and and I would agree with that uh, that it is incredibly complicated not to say that substance use treatment or mental health treatment on their own are, are a walk in the park uh, I think that both of those are also incredibly complicated but this this co-occurrence, the combination of the two, really adds another layer to some of the disruptions in consistency in treatment, some of the difficulties in narrowing down what's actually happening when you first meet with someone that tend to come up and, and make this work really difficult as much as we recognize that it is essential. And I see that outside of complicated complex is kind of storming to the forefront as well. So complicated, complex, uh, absolutely. Uh, schizophrenia, yep, schizophrenia, schizophrenia can absolutely uh, make this challenging. And when you're talking about schizophrenia and the challenges that come along with that, uh, thinking about differential diagnosis between schizophrenia or other psychotic uh, conditions versus is this substance induced or is it uh, uh, residual from substance use, again, makes it uh, incredibly confusing, as somebody mentioned there. If resistance comes up, mm -hmm. yep, good anything else it can be confusing yeah i think it can be confusing for the provider as as well as for the client uh, you know having a, a degree of of empathy for all of the good services that you all are providing it, it can be a lot of services it can be a lot that somebody has to navigate when they're meeting with their psychiatrist one day and then their case manager the next day and then their therapist the following day and then a parent partner or a peer support specialist the next day it's, it's a lot of of services to say nothing of the other kind of case management needs that are uh, that are important to focus on. The question of the poll, that's correct, is what, what do you think of with this prompt? Treatment of co-occurring disorders is blank. What comes up? Stigmatized, yeah, good. Uh, the stigmatization that comes along with mental health and substance use or substance use on its own uh, is, is heightened, I think, when you're talking about co-occurring issues. And um, even when we think about stigma, we're also thinking about 
stigma, even among treatment providers, uh, that's potentially born out of misinformation or uh, discomfort or lack of, of um, uh, proficiency or potentially even a, a sense of knowing how to approach this kind of work. Um, relapse prevention, good, really important. So we're not talking about just kind of uh, achieving some sort of initial stabilization, but how do you make sure that the individual doesn't experience ongoing issues? A little bit easier said than done. Complex, complicated, confusing. It is a process, absolutely. Uh, I agree with that. I, I love also that it's in there, that it's necessary, uh, that it's essential. You're gonna encounter resistance. Uh, it can be hard and it can be draining. And so there is uh, really, I think this is an important time to focus on uh, your self-care as a provider. And when we talk about self-care, uh, that means things that you do outside of work to make sure that you can continue to feel energized to do this work, but also what kind of support are you getting to do this, this type of, of really difficult work um, in your organizations. Um, supervisors, those of you who are supervisors or administrators, that's where you come in, being able to support your providers and um, whether it's from a treatment standpoint or, or more kind of a, a organizational work standpoint, I think uh, recognizing how draining this work can be is, is essential. Okay. Um, so I think complicated and complex is, is what jumps out at me. The goal in this training is to, to try to minimize the complexity of what we're talking about, to simplify it in a way that it's accessible, but not to oversimplify how difficult treatment is, if that makes sense. The interconnectedness of mental health substance use and physical health are incredibly complex and multidimensional. Um, if you have a substance use issue, a mental health issue, or a physical health condition, a medical condition, it can lead to and or exacerbate one of those conditions that you don't have. So we know if somebody has one of those three categories of, of health impairments, they're at significantly greater risk of developing health impairments in those other two uh, areas that they, they don't, uh, compared to somebody who doesn't have a health impairment in any of those issues. So uh, you're likely to see kind of that stacking effect of multiple different health issues, uh, especially in a community health setting. We know that people tend to die a little bit earlier as a result of serious mental illness. We also know that people tend to die a little bit earlier as a result of substance use issues. It's about 25 years of lost life on average compared to the general population. That, that's a significant chunk of somebody's uh, life expectancy potentially. Uh, and we know that it's not a foregone conclusion that oftentimes the most common causes of death that we see with these chronic health conditions are things like cardiovascular disease, diabetes, respiratory issues, uh, other infectious diseases that all have common risk factors that can be managed with behavioral intervention. So when we think about things like smoking, alcohol, poor nutrition, lack of exercise, risky sexual activities, IV drug use, we understand how substance use can either induce this or exacerbate some of these risk factors. We know that these co-occur with mental health conditions as well, especially individuals with serious mental illness. But we know that these common risk factors are responsive to behavioral intervention. The behavioral interventions that we mentioned at the forefront, but also that we'll come back to towards the end of the training. If you are in a substance use treatment setting, you are significantly more likely to encounter someone uh, with a co-occurring mental health disorder, then vice versa. Uh, not to say that, that that's uh, going to be rare in a mental health setting, um, but we see, again, the prevalence of uh, co-occurring substance use and mental illness is significantly higher 
for individuals with a substance use disorder uh, than the opposite of that, than individuals with a mental health condition. I think you're probably seeing significantly more than one in five individuals have a co-occurring uh, substance use and mental health condition uh, among the individuals who are coming into your treatment. Again, because this is general population, those numbers are going to be skewed a little bit higher in a community mental health setting. I'm going through the statistics somewhat quickly because, I, again, I, I don't know that it's nice to know. Uh, I think it helps to guide our conceptualization, but I don't know that we need to spend too much more time on it than that. So if there's something that you have a question about, if there's something you want me to go back to, just let me know. But I'm um, going through the statistics fairly quickly so that we can get to the, the conceptualizations. 12-month prevalence of mental illness. Again, this is broadly speaking, you all probably, depending on where you're working, you get different proportions of um, these different mental health conditions. I think the one that surprised me the most was that personality disorders, 10% uh, of individuals 18 or older had uh, past month <clears throat> personality disorders. Uh, that seemed a little bit high to me, but again, it, it depends on where you're working and, and anecdotally, you may experience a kind of different um, organization of these different prevalence statistics. Um, you see that mood disorders are, are highly prevalent. Um, Post-traumatic stress disorder is a little bit lower, uh, but you're seeing a lot of the, the mood symptoms and a lot of personality disorders. We want to make sure that care is effective. That's ultimately our goal. And, and when we talk about co-occurring disorders, when we talk about these different treatment approaches, we want to make sure that we're addressing in an integrated way substance use issues, mental health issues, as well as physical health issues uh, within our scope of practice as much as possible. So that might mean focusing on behavioral interventions for physical health conditions and then working closely with a physician. If you're a substance use provider, that might mean being aware of how to address uh, issues related to trauma or mental illness, but not diving into the individual's history and, and their mental health condition, but working closely with a, a therapist to support in a coordinated work, uh, co coordinated way, the work that both of you are doing. Most of you are kind of in the A to C range. A few, a few of you feel uh, pretty good with your skills. Uh, pretty good mix. And so as we go forward today, again, share that with your colleagues as we're talking about this. Um, those of you who don't treat co-occurring disorders, uh, I think it's still relevant to know this information, to be able to talk about it if you're thinking about things like we discussed, uh, linkage. Minimal skills, 31%, 31% said moderate, and then a few of you said pretty good. In all honesty, I kind of feel like it it depends on the client. You know, there's some clients where I feel like my skills are are pretty good. I feel like uh, there are those clients where it feels like I have minimal skills in treating whatever comes up. Um, the idea with co-occurring disorders is not to necessarily be an expert in treating every single substance that somebody might bring up or to be an expert in every single mental health condition, but generally to know what types of treatment interventions individuals will be responsive to. Uh, that combination of MI and CBT as a good starting point, and then being able to work in a coordinated fashion with an integrated team uh, to seek out other referrals, to seek out other linkages that might be important. Good. Yeah, so I think everybody is kind of in the same area here that we're, this would probably look a little bit like a, a bell curve if we were to graph it out. Um, not a scientific poll by any means, but it does lead into our next question, 
which is a group discussion around what is your top priority in enhancing your ability to work with clients with co-occurring impairments. So again, uh, feel free to use the chat if you want to unmute yourself. I'd love to hear from you. But thinking about your work, where do you go in terms of enhancing your ability? What is it that you need to do this work better or differently? Repeat what I said about the idea of not being an expert. Yeah, I, I don't think that any one person needs to be an expert in every single substance. So if I'm working with co-occurring disorders, I don't need to be an expert in methamphetamine treatment. I don't need to be an expert in uh, heroin treatment. I just need to generally know what are the symptoms, what are the challenges that come up when somebody is using meth, when somebody is using heroin. I don't need to be an expert in trauma. I don't need to be an expert in schizophrenia. I don't need to be an expert in major depression. I need to generally know what the symptoms of those are and how that interacts with stimulant use, with depressant use. And so when I'm thinking about co-occurring disorders, I think it's more important to have a conceptualization and a, a comfort with the utility of a set of interventions, things like MI and CBT, than it is to know every single nuance about every single mental health or substance use uh, issue that somebody might be bringing to treatment, if that makes sense. I'm happy to, to clarify that a little bit more if needed. Then again, if you are an expert in meth and heroin and schizophrenia and trauma, congratulations to you. I think you're probably very effective in the work that you're doing, but uh, I, I don't know too many people who have the, the time, the energy, or the brain capacity to do all of that. And so I think, uh, again, how do, we, how do we make ourselves effective understanding the complexities of this type of work? And so what are your priorities? What is it that you're focused on? What are you trying to work on? increasing compassion and understanding to an individual's need for care. Nice. Uh, that's foundational, right? That if we don't have that empathy for an individual, there's not a lot that we can really do beyond that. And, and everybody knows this. Everybody understands Rogerian therapy and everybody knows about that good unconditional positive regard that we're supposed to have, but you're all human, I assume. Uh, and it can be difficult to hold that kind of empathy and that space for individuals, especially when you're doing this really, really difficult work. Um, I remember we, we had one case, this was years ago. It was an FSP case. And so we were in the home with the family um, and it was a small one bedroom apartment, not all that uncommon. There were multiple generations of the family living there, but our client in particular, um, I think this probably went on for a good few months where initially when the team would go in, he would, he would be on the couch, he'd have his hoodie on and his thing was he'd get up and he'd walk to his room and shut the door. Eventually they got to the point where he wasn't slamming his door anymore. And they were, they took that as an invitation to kind of talk to him while he was in his room, but he would then go to his bed, uh, pull the covers all the way up and, um, further disengage from them. It eventually got to the point where he was so angry about the team showing up that he would go into his bed, pull the covers up, pull his hoodie over him, and then urinate in the bed uh, when they would show up to the apartment. Uh, hard to hold empathy when that's what you're encountering week in and week out. Um, and again, probably not an uncommon experience to feel like you're unwanted in a particular space when you're trying to meet with a client. Uh, and yet, how do we hold that empathy? How do we hold that compassion to try to recognize where is this person coming from? How am I able to assist them? 
uh, let's see, increasing skills in the integrated approach for treating adolescents with co-occurring disorders. Good. Uh, treating adolescents with co-occurring disorders has a slightly different consideration. Developmentally speaking, they're less likely to have experienced the significant impacts of substance use uh, compared to somebody who's been using for decades or, or potentially longer. That doesn't make it any less challenging. But again, we think about rapport as critical and engagement as critical, especially with adolescents, um, making careful that we are making careful, being careful that we don't adopt a really lecturing tone when we're talking about substance use, but we also recognize risk uh, that comes along with use. That's good. Reducing barriers to substance use treatment in a timely manner. Yeah, in order to keep clients motivated and seeking treatment. Um, I wish I had a solution for resource availability. I wish I could tell you what that was on this session. That would be miraculous. Um, unfortunately, as you all know, resource availability and timely connection to uh, necessary resources is an ongoing struggle. And, and from the case management standpoint, again, incredibly critical. Uh, how do we focus on the treatment component to support those times where maybe we need to keep the person engaged without the kinds of, of resources or the kinds of linkage that are going to be critical. My role is related to linkage, recognizing and understanding, or understanding, uh, recognizing, talking about the client, talking with the client about what's happening, meeting them where they are, good. Providing support to connect to appropriate care, good. So again, um, I, I don't have a solution to the resource availability issue. Uh, I, I certainly wish I did. But let's think about if you're in that role as a case manager, as a therapist, as a substance use counselor, how do you start on the right foot so that the person is engaged, so that they know what they're in for when you're talking about treatment, even if those challenges come up, that they know you're able to provide them with something. Good. How to screen and assess adolescents properly. Good. Uh, time and rapport is one of the best ways to screen and assess adolescents. Unless you're doing like a toxicology test uh, or you know, like a urine test, to, to look at what the individual has in their system. Uh, time and rapport are some of the best ways to determine what somebody might be using or what their mental health condition might be. Increasing skills to support clients, good. Increasing self-sufficiency while providing quality care, good. Uh, yeah, self-sufficiency, so maybe being, not necessarily being a one-person team, but feeling capable. I, I'm hearing a little bit of that, that sense of proficiency for myself to be able to manage a, a uh, uh, what might be coming up in a particular setting while working in a team, but knowing that I can handle this if I need to on my own. Recommendation of where to find out more information on time and rapport. Um, there are a couple different ways that you can think about managing that aspect. Uh, I think, again, I think motivational interviewing is a really good way of understanding how to not outpace your client while building engagement and trust. And I think that works really well with, with adolescents. My uh, really quick takeaway is, if you're working with adolescents in particular, and you all know this, be a person rather than just like a, a robot assigning interventions. Uh, but I think motivational interviewing is a really nice way of allowing us to focus on what gets in our way of, of being able to be empathetic and present. Um, I think from a supervision standpoint, Reflective supervision is a nice supervision modality that, that allows your supervisor to assist you in a little bit more of that process component of thinking about how to enhance engagement and rapport and, and sometimes what obstacles we bring into sessions. Um, I'll try to think of others as we go forward that might be a little bit more succinct, but uh, that might be a good starting point. <clears throat> 
for that particular discussion. Uh, good. So a lot of it focuses on rapport and engagement. So let's let's start there then. Let's talk about what we can do to try to draw people in, not just from that that kind of interpersonal piece of how am I in the room, but what kinds of information can I bring into the session that might be useful? And again, I'm always thinking about this as relevant as long as you're not being preachy and you're not lecturing the exact opposite of what I'm about to do to all of you in just a few seconds on these slides. But let's talk about how to make this relevant and useful. Why do people take drugs? What are some of the reasons that people take drugs? And again, those of you who took the SUD training, you probably saw you saw these slides, so you're you're well versed in this. But feel free to jump in. Good, numbing is one that's coming up a lot. You mentioned that self-medicating is another way of saying uh, numbing. That's good, numbing the pain, numbing feelings, avoidance. Good, recreation uh, for fun, changing reality, or as a means of coping. Good, boredom. As an unhealthy coping mechanism. Interestingly enough, yeah, you're absolutely right. It's an unhealthy coping mechanism, but there's something that works in that for the individual. Otherwise, they wouldn't continue to do it, right? And so, well, we, we see it as an unhealthy coping mechanism, and they may actually see it as unhealthy. For them, to some extent, there's some adaptive component to this. That's good. And sometimes not living on the street, it's survival. You see the adaptive piece of it, even though it's unhealthy. That's great. Uh, staying awake while asleep on the streets. Yep, you hear that a lot, that somebody comes in who's using meth and you're like, well, don't you know that meth is terrible for you? Well, yeah, if that's the only way that they can make sure that they aren't robbed or victimized or, or assaulted, meth is going to be super adaptive. And, and so I, I recognize the maladaptive piece from a health standpoint, but I want to make sure that I don't minimize or, or uh, put my own values on the reasons that the person was doing this and how it was adaptive for them. It's good. Using socially with their peers, gratification, good fun to release stress, or it might be used along with sexual practices uh, to either enhance uh, their sexual activities or their practices, or even to be able to engage in those practices. Good. All of these are correct. There are a number of other reasons we talk about, like social pressure, peer pressure, good. Uh, the mechanisms by which somebody comes by using and maintains their use are various. But there are two main reasons that people take drugs, to either feel good or to feel better. And this encompasses everything that you all talked about, that it's either to enhance an experience that the person is having or wants to have, or to reduce an uncomfortable feeling or some combination of the two. I like this conceptualization because from a neurological standpoint, what it tells me is uh, the main reason that people take drugs is because they like what it does to their brains, that it either enhances an experience or it numbs, as many of you said, an uncomfortable experience. This also helps my conceptualization of where somebody is at in their use when they first come to see me. So one of the things that I, I try to do is I try to unpack this idea of why when somebody is telling me about their use, what is the adaptive component for them? And that allows me to begin to formulate a treatment plan that incorporates some of that value, some of that adaptive mechanism, potentially in healthier activities. Now, I'm not saying that you can replicate what substances do with some other activity. We'll talk a little bit more about that. But it begins to give me a sense of, well, is this person using because it helps them 
feel or experience something in an enhanced way? Or is it that they're using to numb an uncomfortable feeling? Or is it a combination between the two? That gives me some insight into the purpose, the value, the thing that speaks to the individual's core need um, as we move forward in treatment. It's a lot different if somebody says, well, I, I'm using to fit in versus the person who says, well, I'm using because I, I've experienced decades of trauma in my life and this is the only way that I feel normal. Uh, I think that I, I might conceptualize the way that I approach that slightly differently. So what is actually happening in the brain when somebody uses substances? Uh, a lot of this focuses on dopamine. And, and again, some of you may have seen these slides before. Dopamine is one of the neurotransmitters that is, we have the most evidence around of how this particular neurotransmitter is affected by substance use. So what we're going to take a look here at here is what happens with normal dopamine transmission in the brain. Uh, dopamine is that feel-good chemical, that pleasure chemical, uh, and this is what happens in normal dopamine transmission in the brain. Our brains are finely tuned machines. Inside, cells called neurons are constantly communicating to shape how we think, feel, and act. Let's eavesdrop on their conversation. These are the ends of two neurons. The one on the right sends a message, and the one on the left receives it. At first, they look connected, but they are actually separated by a tiny space called a synapse, where messages are relayed. What we'll see next is how we normally experience pleasure. The sending neuron contains dopamine, the brain's pleasure chemical. When something good happens to us, this feel-good chemical is released into the synapse where it connects with receptors. There, dopamine activates the receiving neuron, which in turn conveys the message onto the next neuron, creating a chain reaction that produces pleasure. After the message is sent, dopamine is recycled by transporters to be reused. This conversation repeating itself again and again gives us the feeling of pleasure. All right, so that's what happens in a normal dopamine transmission process. Um, this, the next few slides that we're going to be taking a look at are, are based on rat studies that look at normal baseline uh, basal dopamine output. So you see that graph on the left there. That line at 100 is just the normal basal dopamine output when uh, there's a, a, an innocuous situation that's occurring when you're sitting, when you're not doing anything. In this particular situation, this rat was administered food and what you see is you see a spike in dopamine at the time of feeding similarly uh same situation so we put another rat in that box with that rat and the rats do what the rats are going to do you see another spike in dopamine which tells us definitively the joke that we always make is that sex is worth one and a half cheeseburgers that is science you can take that to the bank uh that's not actually what it tells us what it tells us is that dopamine is implicated in certain behaviors. Those behaviors are behaviors that are reinforced by that feeling of pleasure. If something feels good, you're more likely to do it again. So dopamine has, to some extent, a role in motivation that if something feels good, dopamine is released, you're more likely to repeat that activity. But it goes a little bit beyond that, that when we talk about dopamine tied to specific activities, Dopamine is released, not just when something feels good, but you look at these two activities, 
these are essential for survival. That if an individual doesn't eat, the individual dies. If an individual doesn't uh, reproduce, the species dies. And so from kind of an evolutionary standpoint, you're looking at dopamine tied to behaviors that are essential for survival. What happens when you throw meth into this mix? How does meth change our brain? When we use meth, it enters the bloodstream and travels to the reward center of the brain where it invades the sending neuron. Meth causes dopamine to unnaturally leak into the neuron, then spill into the synapse. Making matters worse, meth blocks the transporters, which recycle dopamine back into the sending neuron. This keeps levels abnormally high, overstimulating our brains. We feel a powerful wave of pleasure. The rush can last 8 to 12 hours from just one dose. So dopamine does something a little bit differently. And you see the way in which you have that dopamine flooding into the synapse and then the reuptake process does not function as properly because of the blockage that methamphetamine causes. Uh, you see similar spikes in dopamine across all of the, the illicit or recreational substances that people may use. So um, we extend our little rat friend analogy. Our rat buddy goes out to a bar after a long day of doing research and he has a drink. You see a spike in dopamine with the administration of ethanol. That purple line that you see on the left there is uh, consistent with the spike in dopamine uh, related to sex. Uh, Rat goes outside, has a cigarette after he has a drink, you see a spike in dopamine. So it begins to make sense why certain activities are paired together, why alcohol and cigarettes are paired together, why alcohol and sex is paired together. Uh, having dinner and having alcohol, dinner and a cigarette are paired together. You get that bump in dopamine, that feeling of pleasure. Cocaine goes a little bit higher than that. So you see that purple line, again, that represents that spike related to sex. And then the mechanism of action is a little bit longer as well. I want you to pay particular attention to the scale on the left side of that graph, on the y-axis of that graph. Going from 0 to 250, 0 to 400, if we look at methamphetamine, that spike goes from 0 to 1,500. There is nothing on this planet that is going to naturally produce a feeling of pleasure like methamphetamine. If we were to take this just on its own, looking at this spike in this feeling of pleasure, it almost begins to make sense that we wouldn't ask the question, well, like, why are you using meth? The question should almost be, why aren't you using meth? If nothing else is going to make you feel this good uh, naturally, why aren't you using meth? Well, turns out that using meth is not all that great for you. Uh, it, Ironically enough, when you have dopamine flood the synapse in that way, it actually causes damage to those receptor sites, which leads to some of the functional impairments that you see cognitively, behaviorally with individuals who have been using meth for a long period of time. Uh, so these substances, the, the benefit of that spike in pleasure is not without some degree of consequence. Um, it also leads me to understand in treatment that if somebody is using something like methamphetamine and they come in and we're like, well, you just got to use your coping skills, take a few deep breaths, take a walk, watch the sunset. Uh, none of that is going to sufficiently replicate that feeling of pleasure. My interventions are not going to be powerful enough to manage what is missing in that person's life? I have to be cognizant of that. And I have to be aware of that. What I'm doing with my interventions is not replacement. 
it's not trying to get this person to replace a substance with pro-social, healthy, adaptive behaviors, but rather those are a means to navigating and stabilizing better health down the line. Uh, I think that conceptualization helps in empathizing with just how difficult it can be for somebody to discontinue use uh, and hear what we have to say in treatment. The other things that happen, uh, this is particularly pronounced with methamphetamine use, is you have overactivation of this area of the brain. This area of the brain is, what is this area of the brain here? You're looking at both hemispheres, by the way, both lobes of the brain. Uh, this would be if you were to take somebody's, I don't remember the technical term, the medical term for this particular uh, dissection, but you're looking straight on at the brain. Uh, if you were to remove the face, looking straight on at the brain, seeing both hemispheres, what is this area that is activated here? No one's going to hazard a guess. Uh, this is the amygdala. The amygdala is responsible for a few different things, one of which is related to fear response and to some extent, emotional processing and regulation. So with these brain scans, red is good. Red means activation, good healthy activation, good strong blood flow to that area of the brain. Uh, blue means that there isn't a ton of activation. This is a different cross-section. So this is looking from the front to the back. The left side is the back of the brain. The front is uh, the front, or the right side is the front of the brain. That blue area there is the prefrontal cortex. The prefrontal cortex is responsible for things like judgment, decision-making, attention, concentration, impulse control. All of the things that we expect somebody to be able to do in treatment. I want you to think through your options. I want you to stop and take a deep breath and remember what we talked about in treatment. I want you to consider what the consequence will be if you do this. All of those interventions are speaking to the prefrontal cortex and expecting that the prefrontal cortex will take my words, consider them logically and integrate them in a way that translates to behavior. Instead, what you have when somebody first comes into treatment and they've been using substances is kind of an all gas, no brakes situation. You, you see this in a number of different ways. When a client comes in and you say something innocuous and it sets them off and they suddenly are pissed off at you because you said something or you did something and it seems completely misaligned with what happened in that interaction. I still want to emphasize with that. I still want to recognize their experience. But part of this may be the overactivation of that emotional reactivity area of the brain and the lack of an inhibitory control coming from that, the, the higher areas of the brain, the higher cognitive executive functioning areas of the brain, specifically the prefrontal cortex. If you ever heard any of Dan Siegel's uh, talks, he talks about flipping your lid. This is one of the things that he talked about doing with children and adolescents, but I think it works really well with adults too. Um, that his hand model of the brain identifies that limbic system as the thumb and then you have your spinal cord, you have your uh, brainstem extending down the wrist, and then you have your prefrontal cortex, uh, your higher cortex wrapping around the limbic system that regulates it, it keeps it in check. When somebody gets upset, when they get overly emotionally activated, they flip their lid and that limbic system is highly exposed to reactivity. Um, that's a little bit of what we're seeing here in these brain scans. The prefrontal cortex is underactivated. And while this is more pronounced with methamphetamine and stimulants, you see a similar activation pattern 
with all of the substances that we're going to be talking about. Uh, the impact of stimulants is a little bit more detrimental neurologically, but you still see this change in functioning and you still see a structural change with a lot of these other substances that we'll be talking about. What does this mean in terms of treatment? Uh, it means that some of these changes in the brain can persist long after substance use has stopped. It also means that you sometimes see a similar activation pattern with different types of mental illnesses. Uh, these prolonged changes can impact an individual's functioning long after they've discontinued their substance use. And what we tend to see is that the brain changes in such a way that voluntary drug use eventually becomes compulsive or compulsory. This has bearings for how I, I address someone in treatment. One of the things that I want to consider is that while these changes occur in the brain, they are reversible to some extent. They do respond to treatment, but it takes time. One of the things that I cannot do is I cannot expect somebody who's coming in initially in treatment or even within the first six to 12 months to have that good, healthy prefrontal cortex functioning that would look like really adaptive mechanisms in treatment. I'll give you some suggestions for what I might do in just a little bit, but I wanna make sure there aren't any questions related to the neurological components. Um, so before we move on, what questions do you have about this conceptualization of the brain? Great question, what about neuroplasticity? Um, neuroplasticity, neuroplasticity is one of the components that causes this drug use to change from voluntary to compulsive, but it's also one of the reasons that treatment is effective. That without neuroplasticity, without the brain's ability to heal or to change, treatment wouldn't look like it does now. There wouldn't be a focus on improvement and rehabilitation or recovery. People would be stuck where they are with the damage that they've experienced. But we know that the brain is highly plastic at certain points in, in the lifespan, it's more plastic than others. Somebody asked about adolescence. Well, during adolescence, one of the drawbacks of neuroplasticity as the brain is growing and developing during that period of time is that substance use doesn't affect adolescents in the same way, meaning they have to take more of a substance to experience the intoxicating effects than somebody who's a little bit older because their brains are more plastic and they're gonna recover a little bit quicker. Unfortunately, that also means that adolescence is a critical period for development and for those uh, good neural connections that we would want to see benefiting that person later on in life. Uh, it doesn't mean that once somebody is out of adolescence that they can't recover certain types of brain functioning or certain types of cognitive functioning. It just becomes a little bit harder. Uh, so we think about neuroplasticity uh, plasticity as being simultaneously a huge, huge benefit, but also uh, um, something to be cognizant of depending on when somebody starts their use uh, and how long that use has continued on. Um, with something like methamphetamine, even though there is that potential for recovery, what you have is you have a disruption in, in neural connections, right? So imagine that you have those neural connections that develop during adolescence that relate to, to cognitive functioning, those are disrupted with ongoing methamphetamine use, which is why you see those, those um, functional impairments like uh, ongoing difficulties with concentration, attention, depression, uh, potentially even psychotic symptoms. When those 
connections reform with ongoing treatment and support, they don't reform in the same way. And that's what leads to continued difficulties with depression, continued experiences of challenges with um, psychotic symptoms. And so methamphetamine is particularly detrimental to those neural connections and also uh, the potential for them to, to reform or to, to strengthen with treatment. So the neuroplasticity uh, related to adolescence. So um, during adolescence, you're getting a lot of neural connections that are forming. And then you're also getting pruning of neural connections that aren't going to be used uh, later in adult life. Uh, what this means is that an adolescent brain is particularly susceptible to the impact of substance use, meaning the damages that are caused during adolescence are, are harder to reverse as the individual grows older, so to speak, right? It's a critical developmental period, uh, depending on what in experiences an individual has, that will relate to their brain development. At the same time, adolescents are incredibly resilient. So if somebody initiates substance use in adolescence and they seek treatment during adolescence, they're likely to benefit from treatment more than somebody who, from a neurological standpoint, simply broadly speaking, they're more likely to get that neurological benefit than somebody who's used meth for 30 or 40 years coming into treatment when they're 40 or 50. That makes sense. Uh, is it possible to provide effective treats when a person is currently using? Um, it depends on the treatment that you're trying to provide. If you're trying to stabilize them and discontinue their substance use, it is entirely possible. If you're trying to dive into their experiences of trauma in their childhood, absolutely not. Uh, there are some benefits that somebody can get from simply being in treatment, the containment of it, the structure, the consistency, the support, the risk assessment, that can happen. But if you're talking about truly benefiting from mental health treatment in a way that allows that person to develop new skills uh, and more adaptive functioning, it's not going to happen when somebody is actively using. Again, doesn't mean that they won't get some benefit, but really what we're talking about in terms of moving towards more adaptive functioning, uh, it's not really going to work all that well if somebody is actively using. Uh, some people believe that drugs don't cause any mental illness. They trigger mental illness only if a person has, um, I'm going to guess that's a genetic factor with mental illness. Do I agree with that? Um, yes and no. I'm going to go completely middle of the road because, again, really another good, really complex question that we don't know enough about. There's still a lot about the genetics of mental illness and the genetics of, of uh, sub or a, a susceptibility to substance use issues that we don't understand that I don't feel confident saying one way or the other. But we do have we do have a lot of evidence that indicates that substance use can trigger or exacerbate an underlying mental health condition. So I would agree with that. We also have evidence that substances can induce mental health or mental illness symptoms absent underlying genetic vulnerabilities for that particular mental health condition. A lot of research currently is looking at schizophrenia and focusing on genetic variants that cause greater susceptibility to individuals and adolescents to develop psychotic symptoms with any marijuana use. But there are a lot of studies that indicate that there is an increase in psychotic symptoms 
independent of that underlying genetic vulnerability. So while that genetic vulnerability is way more pronounced, um, even individuals without that underlying genetic vulnerability can experience psychotic symptoms induced by uh, ongoing marijuana use. So, uh, so I, I don't know how good of an answer this is, but I'm going to go completely middle of the road. Yes and no, we, we need a lot more research, but it certainly is worth talking to clients about the fact that if you have an underlying mental health condition or if you have a diagnosed mental health condition, any substance use is going to make that worse. Um, if you don't have an underlying mental health condition, there's the possibility that some of that could be induced by a substance. Uh, I, again, I don't want to talk about that in a way that's preachy or like after school special, but legitimately trying to share that information so that the client feels more motivated or empowered to advocate for themselves as we're working together in treatment, I think is ultimately the goal of that kind of information. Um, hopefully that answers your question. If, if you want to add any more to that, if you want to follow up on it in any way, uh, just let me know. I'm happy to, to go into it a little bit more. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about the complexity of co-occurring disorders. So we're going to put you into some small groups now. Um, <clears throat> and you're each going to get one particular substance assigned or category of substances to assign, assign to you as a group. Again, I don't expect anybody in any of the groups to be a complete expert in the substance that's assigned. I just really want you to have a chance to talk with each other, to, to have a chance to introduce yourself to your colleagues. And just spend a few minutes identifying in your category of substance that you're getting, what are examples of that drug? What are the intoxicating effects of that drug? What are the indicators of withdrawal for that drug? And then what does an individual need to know in order to accurately identify and assess use issues? And then what mental health symptoms does this mimic? So this is going to be a really quick overview. Again, this is not solely a substance use disorder training. And so we're going to use this as an opportunity to summarize these different broad categories of substances. And then we'll start to, to transition this into a conversation about co-occurring mental health. Um, there will be the four different breakout rooms. Breakout room one will focus on alcohol. Uh, breakout room two will focus on opioids. Breakout room three will focus on stimulants. And then breakout room four will talk about marijuana. It's, you don't need to go into a ton of detail, but just enough of an overview that we kind of get a sense of your particular substance. What we're going to do now is we're just going to give you an opportunity to teach your colleagues about what you came up with. Again, this, this isn't meant to, to be an in-depth uh, examination of each of these different substances, but a little bit of what your understanding is based on your group, based on what your group came up with. Uh, and we'll, we'll start with the alcohol group, if you all don't mind. So that would be group one. Um, just walking us through what you came up with in terms of examples of the drug, intoxicating effects, uh, withdrawal, what do you need to know, and how does it mimic mental health symptoms? Good. That, that's actually a more in-depth answer than we usually get for this particular one, because it, it's a weird question, right? Like, what are examples of alcohol? Well, like alcohol is an example of an alcohol. So I think you answered it exactly right. Uh, and I like that you focused on kombucha uh, because you're, you're correct that kombucha goes through a fermentation process and it, there is a slight alcohol content to different types of kombucha. And you hear about that as a potential relapse trigger for some individuals. So a uh, really good observation. 
Good. So a little bit of that numbing, a little bit of what we talked about before, kind of that self-medicating piece, right? The, um, that you get lowered inhibitions, which is one component of potentially enhancing an experience, and then a little bit of the numbing out. Okay, good. The symptoms of hangover, I mean, those are, are kind of a microcosm of some of the indicators of withdrawal. A hangover is essentially a uh, withdrawal from alcohol. And so you think about uh, some of the symptoms similar to that. Uh, you covered you covered those. We'll come back to that because I think it'll be important to reiterate, but that was a good list. Great. And so this is going to be relevant for all of the categories. You're, you're talking about, if I'm thinking about the kind of the physiological impact on the individual, I would want to start with, and this can lead into other questions, I would want to know uh, what the person is using, how long they've been using it, how often they use it, how much they use, what is the route of administration? So those five items are kind of my starting point to broadly address this need to know. Uh, and certainly, as, as you talked about, you can go in a, a number of different directions thinking about uh, other functional impairments, identifying uh, patterns of tolerance and withdrawal. Uh, but those those five questions tend to guide kind of my initial need to know uh, to understand what's going on with the substance. Good, uh, good description of those. I'm just going to really quickly go through some of the key points. Um, alcohol, yeah, you typically think about your beer, wine, liquor, the spirits, uh, and again, you kind of want to assess for what somebody is using because those all have different alcohol contents, which may be an indicator uh, of potential patterns of problematic use, depending on what that person is doing. Alcohol is the most frequently used uh, depressant in most regions of the world. It is uh, typically the most frequently used substance in most parts of the world, uh, if we're not counting things like caffeine, uh, which kind of gets a pass. Uh, it is the most prevalent type of substance use disorder as well. 90% of adults will have consumed alcohol at some point in their lifetime. 60% of males, 30% of females have experienced one or more alcohol-related adverse events. And you see that the 12-month prevalence is right around 9% among individuals 18 or older. In the United States in particular, um, individuals among individuals 12 and older, you have over 50% who report past month use of alcohol. And so, again, most widely used, a lot of what relates to that is the social acceptability of it, the promotion of it socially. I think a lot of that goes into the fact that it's legal. Uh, a lot of that it contributes to the popularity of use. You see the differences among racial and ethnic groups. Um, I would love to get into this a lot more because it's not just about the statistics, but there are factors related to those racial and ethnic groups that either um, exacerbate the effects of alcohol in a way that lead to additional functional impairments or potentially uh, use disorders. But there are also components to be considered of related to over-reporting or under-reporting uh, the, the cultural and social acceptability of noting problems with use or mental health conditions is also something to be aware of. Um, you see that Native Americans and Alaskan Native disproportionately are affected by uh, a lot of these substances that we'll be talking about, as well as certain mental health conditions uh, and physical health effects. 
that's not just a byproduct of, of race and ethnicity. Certainly there are other systemic and uh, sociological factors to consider within that. So note the statistics, but don't take it just at face value. Among Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders, it was previously thought that uh, changes in a particular enzyme that affected the metabolization of alcohol resulted in lower prevalence rates of alcohol use disorders. There's more and more research that seems to indicate that the one of the bigger factors contributing to those lower rates is simply underreporting due to cultural um, stigma around uh, acknowledgement of use or, or mental health conditions. You all covered the, the types of alcohol. It's not just beer, not just wine, not just liquors, but other substances people may be using. You'll hear sometimes about people trying to use like mouthwash or hand sanitizer to try to get drunk if they're really, really hard pressed to try to find a substance. Um, the route of administration is typically oral, but it is not always oral. And so you want to assess, don't presume that somebody is just consuming alcohol via drinking it. There are other ways to consume alcohol, some that are more problematic than, than just drinking it, how that carry a greater health risk. So it's worth uh, considering that as well. Talk to you about the acute effects. Uh, depression, sedation is what we're talking about. When we talk about depression, we're not necessarily talking about mental or, or emotional depression, talking more about cognitive and behavioral psychomotor depression. Uh, sedation, there might be a slight feeling of euphoria. There's a slight pain relieving quality to initial administration of alcohol. Uh, but ultimately what you get is you get lowered heart rate, slowered reaction time, and then with sufficient consumption, uh, potentially even death. Um, the main consideration with alcohol is the withdrawal, that, that alcohol withdrawal is the riskiest withdrawal, all things being equal. Of all the substances we're talking about, alcohol carries the highest lethality potential in terms of withdrawal. So there's a potential of seizures that can result in death uh, as a result of withdrawal. So um, if somebody is looking at discontinuing alcohol use, you always want to assess for past experiences of seizures. Um, any, any history of that, and it should always be done in conversation with a medical professional. We recognize that in terms of alcohol use, um, an increase in risk of alcohol use disorder is associated with bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, and antisocial personality disorder. Uh, mood disorders may be related. The strongest associations tend to be depressive symptoms, um, as a factor of either intoxication and or withdrawal, as Miriam and Gabrielle mentioned. Um, it is also associated with a number of other health impairments, such as Korsakoff's, which is a neurological deterioration that is not due to the chemical makeup of alcohol itself, but rather some of the, the changes in health-related functioning that come along with continued alcohol for periods of, of time. It's related to impulse control and, and self-regulation issues. Um, Self-medication models have indicated that alcohol use likely uh, increases or increases the likelihood of continued use despite negative consequences. So uh, it, it's typically beneficial from a person's viewpoint to continue to use alcohol as a means of managing emotion or men, emotional or mental distress uh, versus the negative consequences that come along with alcohol. The negative consequences of alcohol tend to take time to accumulate. Uh, 
Uh, it's not like somebody drinks a beer one time and they end up in prison and they have health consequences. And so that kind of that slow creeping of the consequences that can build up as their use gets away from them can often lead to this, this discrepancy or this ambivalence in the person's mind of I'm getting more from this substance than the negative consequences, which leads me as a provider to think maybe I need to find a way to structure that conversation so that the person is aware of some of the negative impacts that they may be experiencing, even if it's not the most prevalent thing in their mind at that point in time. Uh, more than one out of three individuals with schizophrenia meet the criteria for alcohol use disorder. So you want to be cognizant of, uh, again, people with schizophrenia using alcohol as a compensatory mechanism, as a way of coping. Um, I used to do private practice with individuals uh, with schizophrenia and the number of people who got out of hospital the first thing they wanted to do, like wanted to go to bars before COVID and all of that, uh, before everything shut down and then reopened again, uh, everybody would talk about like, oh, I, I want to get a drink. I want to go out with my friends and go to a bar. And, and it seemed like there was some component of being able to do that, that felt normal to individuals. Again, that conversation of alcohol, not just as a substance, but as a, a social interaction makes the conversation a lot more difficult. This is true with most substances that we're talking about. It, it's related to alcohol here, but use of illicit substances or recreational substance use with uh, schizophrenia tends to exacerbate the active symptoms of schizophrenia and reduce the, the kind of prodromal period or the interepisodic period. Uh, meaning you're getting shorter periods where there aren't symptoms and the periods where there are symptoms are going to be significantly more impactful and impairing. Uh, we see this a lot with, with marijuana use, that people swear by the, the magical properties of marijuana uh, to reduce psychotic symptoms uh, until they stop using marijuana or until they have their next psychotic episode. That tends to be way more pronounced. It tends to be significantly worse um, as a result of that, that recreational use or that illicit substance use. Individuals with depressive disorders are two to three times more likely to develop alcohol use issues, again, possibly as a means of coping. Uh, you see direct and indirect changes uh, that result in drinking leading to depression. Some of the direct changes are uh, changes in the prefrontal cortex that result from depressive disorders that can lead to impaired cognitive control, which might increase the risk of something like alcohol use issues. Um, indirect, the idea that drinking leads to relationship conflict can exacerbate or induce some symptoms of depression as well as other types of mental health conditions. So uh, going back a little bit of this chicken and egg, uh, it could be one or the other, either direct or indirect. Uh, there could be an underlying condition that's exacerbated or could potentially be induced as well. Really hard to tease apart. And in that situation, you wanna to try to address what's in front of you um, as a means of, of uh, stabilizing the individual's recovery or functioning. Good, let's go to group two, opioids. So a range of different types of opioids. Tramadol is, is typically prescribed a little bit more frequently because the potency is significantly less than something like morphine. Um, you hear a little bit of Vicodin prescribing for pain relief. That's part of the reason that we're in the opioid epidemic that we have now, uh, which is a larger conversation. Uh, good recognition of kind of the prescription opioids, things like Vicodin and Tramadol. 
Uh, and then you have other types of opioids like heroin, fentanyl that are used more illicitly. Good, good, excellent. Uh, let's go to the next one. What are the intoxicating effects of this drug? Good, so withdrawal is, uh, one of the intoxicating effects potentially is that you have that respiratory depression, that calming of everything, but your concern is if somebody uh, uses too much, then they might have sufficient respiratory depression to affect their other uh, systems. Um, good. The way that I've heard withdrawal symptoms from opioids described is that it's the worst flu that you've ever had. And so if you yeah. think about the symptoms, that fits. It's the worst flu that you've ever had multiplied by about 100. So uh, if you've ever had the flu where it's kind of knocked you out for a few days and you've, you've been able to do nothing except for lay in bed or lay on the floor, that times 100, going back to Scott's point, somebody will feel really compelled to get out of that feeling, which then leads to doing or saying anything that they need to in order to get more. Because one of the quickest ways to relieve that symptom of discomfort is to use more opioids to get that next fix. Good, good point. Uh, good, good combination there. Good teamwork between all of you. Uh, what do I, anything else that I need to know outside of those five items of, uh, as was mentioned previously? Again, one more time, it's uh, what is the person using? How long have they been using? How often do they use? How much do they use? And then what's the route of administration? I cover that. And then I also like that you asked about other treatment episodes. I think some of the recent research indicates that people who are coming into opioid treatment go through on average six different treatment episodes. Uh, that's a lot of treatment episodes. And you're going to get people if they've gone through that who are really well-versed in what you're about to tell them. They could probably run your groups for you if they're that savvy. Uh, but you also may have somebody who are coming in for the sixth time not having picked up anything from previous treatment. So knowing a little bit about that past treatment is a really great question to ask. Uh, and then any mental health symptoms that it mimics. It's a recognition of where that person is. If they're, if they're intoxicated or if they're using, it might right. look like depression. It might look like kind of a disconnectedness. Uh, mm -hmm. Maybe they're even overly sleepy or fatigued. If they're mm -hmm. in withdrawal, it could look like anxiety. It could look like irritability. It could even look like psychosis uh, because the person may feel so urgently that they need to use or to not feel uncomfortable that it may look almost psychotic. It may look uh, like a high, high level of anxiety, uh, potentially even irritability, maybe aggression, depending on the individual, less likely, but it could be, uh, it could be a factor of, of that urgency. Good. Excellent. Thank you very much. Uh, opiate and opioid are, are interchangeably used. Um, they are they refer to either synthetic compounds of uh, opioids such as heroin or methadone. Uh, the opiate refers to a substance that is directly derived from the opium poppy, uh, morphine or codeine. Uh, narcotic is the legal designation. Your routes of administration are intravenous, smoked, intranasal, oral, or intrarectal. Again, your effects are a slowing down similar to the depressants. The one thing that I focus on uh, typically from a mental health standpoint is that you'll hear people talk about this sense of well-being. Beyond that, well-being sounds kind of pedestrian. I I've heard people talk about using heroin and the first time that they used heroin, it was like the first time that they had like a, a, a a sense that they were okay. And think about how profound that is
for somebody who is potentially stigmatized, marginalized as a result of mental health conditions, uh, potentially experiencing those mental health conditions as, as being other or separated, having to manage that, the first time that they use heroin, they feel like they belong. That's a really profound experience that somebody might have uh, induced by a substance. Um, the withdrawals we talked about, like the worst flu ever, um, tends to peak within 72 hours, unlikely to kill someone unless there's some pre-existing condition. I, I wouldn't want somebody to take that risk. I would want them to go through a medical withdrawal uh, as indicated. But generally speaking, withdrawal from opioids, the person will feel like they're dying, but it is unlikely to kill them unless there is some underlying um, risk, uh, medical risk. You covered the, the mental health uh, considerations, the anxiety, the depression are the ones that tend to come up. Uh, there is no significant adverse medical consequence of sedative hypnotic. So I'm switching a little bit to other depressants and then we'll wrap this all up. Sedative hypnotics, things like benzos are classified in this category. There is no significant adverse medical consequence of long-term use. The risk tends to be from the substance use or the addictive component. And one of the things we want to think about with depressants is the potential for respiratory depression leading to death. Uh, if somebody is mixing benzos with alcohol, with opioids, uh, there's a stacking effect of that respiratory depression, which is particularly problematic when you're talking about overdose. We talked about depression. Uh, symptoms of depression can be due to acute withdrawal. They tend to fade after the first month post-abstinence. Um, substance use also appears to be more likely to cause anxiety rather than to alleviate the symptoms. This was published in 2005. If you're taking notes on this, I want you to strike that out because a more recent study has actually found that people are more likely to develop substance use issues as a means of coping with anxiety rather than having anxiety induced from substances, which kind of makes sense, I think, based on what we uh, see. You're seeing a lot of self-medication. All right, let's go to stimulants next. There's that stimulant component, uh, that feeling of euphoria, feeling invincible, so a little bit of potential grandiosity that comes along with that energy, that, that energy, uh, that feeling of being energized. Good. Uh, how about withdrawal? Potentially, yes. You might think about suicidality. Um, yeah, it's good. I think that's something that you want to be cognizant of with during withdrawal from a lot of these substances, uh, not just because of the discomfort physiologically that somebody is feeling, but the change that happens when something that they are depending on or have depended on psychologically, behaviorally, physiologically is no longer there, that's a, a loss process. And so I think I would want to be cognizant of any risk for suicidality. Uh, really good point. That is, it's kind of that seesaw with amphetamine, right? So you're going to see people during that recovery process where they're going to be feeling pretty good. And then they're going to feel really kind of low energy, almost like depression. And there are going to be times that they're going to be a little bit more keyed up and they're going to be a little bit more irritable, a little bit more confrontational potentially. And you as a provider get to experience all of that within a period of time. Uh, you often hear about that honeymoon period where somebody first comes into treatment, particularly with amphetamine, where they're on board, they're there, to, they're happy to see you. You're going to help them with everything they're deferring to you and then a couple of days later or maybe even a couple of hours later suddenly you're the worst person in the world and you see that up and down um that is particularly pronounced with amphetamine so you get a little bit of that seesaw 
during the uh, during the withdrawal period. The stimulants range from things like methamphetamine to cocaine to potentially even prescribed stimulants. Now we're looking at amphetamine type stimulants here, which is very much in the category of uh, like prescribed amphetamines versus methamphetamine. Um, you could consider other uh, stimulants that people may be using. Energy drinks are considered a stimulant to a degree. Uh, caffeine is a stimulant, though somebody who is managing caffeine use disorder is probably going to present very differently than somebody who's managing methamphetamine use issues. Uh, the 12-month prevalence for stimulant use disorder, amphetamine type, is about 0.2%. Uh, so depending on where you're working, you're probably more likely to encounter alcohol, marijuana uh, as the main substance use issues, um, heroin or opioid use issues, potentially even things like benzos. But again, it depends on where you're working, what kind of organization, clinic, or community you might be in. Nearly 10% of high school students misuse prescription stimulants, and then we see uh, high reports of misuse among college students. So again, depending on the environment that you're in, the population you're working with, uh, you might want to be cognizant of asking about misuse of stimulants, things like Adderall, things like Ritalin. Um, with methamphetamine and, and cocaine as well, you see this used in kind of a, a binge and crash pattern. With cocaine, it's used more as like a party drug, whereas meth is used on a run where people will forego food or sleep for long periods of time. The one thing that I am cognizant of with the long-term effects is, as we talked about, the changes in brain structure and function that can mimic certain cognitive or emotional uh, disturbances or impairments long after the person has discontinued use. So somebody who is presenting with something like depression or psychosis could potentially be methamphetamine induced either as acute withdrawal or long term. Um, is it important to make a differential diagnosis? Sure, but I also think it's important to just gather as much information as you can working with collaterals, working with uh, other integrated service providers and then treating what's in front of you, uh, trying to manage those symptoms from a behavioral standpoint, from a, a cognitive standpoint. Um, good, I think we covered all that. Excellent. Uh, if we look at the comorbidities, you often see a co-occurrence of sedative use with stimulant use as kind of a, um, a balancing out, right? A compensatory mechanism that as somebody uses a sedative, they might use a stimulant to counteract the effects. You see this either in specific episodes of use or you see it things like seasonally. Um, we've worked with individuals who like work in agriculture and during peak seasons, they'll use stimulants. During off seasons, they'll use uh, sedatives or, or things like opioids to, to relax or alcohol. So again, be cognizant of changes in use that just because somebody is using one thing doesn't mean that they will always use that. Uh, cocaine users are more likely to use alcohol, whereas amphetamine users are more likely to use cannabis. Uh, stimulant use disorder can occur with PTSD, ADHD, gambling disorder. You see that frequently as a result of trying to stay energized. Uh, and then you see reports of chest pain. Uh, and one thing to be aware of is depending on where somebody is getting their stimulants, there might be adulterants that are added to the substance that could potentially be harmful. All right, cannabis group, last but not least. So you described kind of the two different strains, and this is broad classifications of the strains that people would typically seek out. Um, you have either the indica strain or the sativa strain. The sativa is gonna be higher in 
THC content, broadly speaking, uh, that higher THC content in the sativa gives a little bit more of that heady high, as you're talking about, which might lead to more sensory experiences, hallucinations, uh, contrasted with the indica, which is higher in CBD cannabidiol, which is getting a lot of attention now. CBD produces more of a body high, which is going to result in pain relief, uh, a little bit of that analgesic component, uh, a little bit more of that relaxation as well. And so you can go to shops and get different combinations of the two uh, in, in really unique ways. Uh, whether or not that's accurate all depends on the shop and what's being sold. Uh, what about withdrawal from cannabis products? This is always an interesting conversation to have with adolescents because they say you can't get addicted to it and you can't withdraw from it. Can you withdraw from cannabis products? It's one thing that we tend not to talk about when we're talking about withdrawal symptoms, because when we talk about withdrawal, we tend to talk about physiological symptoms, right? So what's happening in your body when you no longer have that substance? But we don't talk about the secondary effects, right? That if somebody's using to self-medicate and we take that thing away, not that we do that in treatment, but just kind of colloquial, if we take it away, they're still left with whatever was there before. I think about that in particular when I'm working with somebody who's self-medicating for something like trauma. Great. If I focus on substance use and I say, all right, you got to stop smoking weed because it's bad for you because of this reason, this reason, this reason, and this reason, but I don't address the underlying trauma. If I don't talk about that or, or link them to appropriate services to discuss that, all I'm really doing is taking away their one coping mechanism that seems to have worked for them from their perspective up to this point. So I want to be really careful that when I have this conversation, I'm comprehensively identifying, as Sebastian mentioned, why is this person doing it? What did it do for them? And how can I anticipate a continued need for some type of relief if this maladaptive coping mechanism is removed? Really good point. And I think it's worth noting uh, that, yeah, people may be using not just because it's fun, but because they're actually trying to avoid some other unpleasant or uncomfortable experience. Good. Uh, you can withdraw from cannabis products. The reason for that is that you're adding something into your body and then you're taking it away. Uh, current cannabis products also have a higher average THC content than they did 20 years ago. Uh, 20, 25 years ago, you had about one to 2% THC. Um, now it's upwards of 20%. If you're talking about something like hash, or hash oil, you get 80% potency uh, of THC with that. And so again, products are different. They're cultivated different. They are highly, highly potent compared to what they were years ago, uh, which I think reduce, induces a little bit of that physiological withdrawal. We talked about some of the impact. Now, we talked about the withdrawal. We talked about the potential for uh, misuse. If it's the case that somebody comes in and they're like, oh, you know what, I've been using heroin for the last four months, but I started smoking weed uh, a couple of weeks ago and I haven't touched heroin since. I'm not going to tell them like marijuana is great, but at the same time, I'm going to recognize that that's probably better from a health standpoint than continuing to use heroin. Uh, so you still want to have the conversation about the impacts of marijuana, but in terms of if I'm scaling risk related to marijuana use versus something like methamphetamine, I want to take that in context. Uh, of what I understand about these substances. Marijuana can lead to long-term uh, amotivational syndrome, which reduces the person's desire to do anything 
except use marijuana. And then we talked about the association with schizophrenia as well. Uh, individuals who use cannabis have a higher lifetime risk of using other dangerous substances. I, I want to be careful that I don't call cannabis a gateway drug, though, because I don't think that accurately reflects uh, what we're talking about here, about the potential for other risky behaviors. And I feel like gateway is highly, highly politicized. So what I'm talking about here is not necessarily a gateway drug, but rather an increase in risk across a person's lifetime of other risky behaviors. Uh, that may be due to the cannabis. It may not be. Uh, there could be a number of other factors. You're looking at an increased uh, risk of hospitalization and mental health treatment needs, higher rates of depression, anxiety disorders, suicide attempts, and conduct disorders. Remember that just because there is that association does not mean that there is a causative effect, but it would be worth assessing comprehensively, if at all possible. Note that when you're thinking about treating co-occurring depression with substance use, treating co-occurring depressive symptoms has actually been shown to improve substance-related outcomes. Uh, untreated depressive symptoms can influence the client's response to SUD treatment in terms of engagement and willingness to be there. Also consider that hopelessness and relapse uh, are interrelated, that the more hopeless somebody feels, that creates a psychological environment that supports substance use relapse. Um, two populations with the highest rates of suicide are people who are depressed and people with a substance use disorder. I want to be cognizant of the potential for suicide, but I also want to note when I'm thinking about co-occurring treatment that the piece of hopelessness can have people turn back to these maladaptive coping mechanisms. Uh, that it seems intuitive, but I think it's worth focusing on because you're, you're getting that with all of these different substances that we're discussing. Uh, some other tips for you as providers, keep in mind with affective disorders in particular, uh, that withdrawal from depressants, opioids, and stimulants can look like anxiety symptoms. Uh, during the first month of abstinence, you're going to see some depression symptoms that might be common, but they'll start to fade away as the acute withdrawal fades. Now, we're going to talk about that withdrawal process in just a second, but that withdrawal process is not set in stone. It's not one month and then they're in the clear. It can persist long after that. So it's going to be really hard to figure out, is this induced because of withdrawal or not? Um, I think educating the client about how it could potentially be related to withdrawal and maybe it won't last forever can be beneficial. But ultimately, you want to focus on coping skills. You want to focus on a treatment plan that addresses depressive symptoms regardless of how they're induced because it will generalize to whether it's organic mental health or substance induced and be beneficial for both. Uh, individuals with co-occurring affective disorder and substance use will typically use a variety of substances, which makes that assessment process even more difficult. Careful and continuous assessment is key. Try to differentiate among the following, mood versus anxiety disorders, commonplace expressions of anxiety and depression, anxiety and depression that is associated with more serious mental illness, and then any medical conditions and medication side effects. Uh, if you can understand the history of that and try to pinpoint when substances were started or when they were discontinued, it gives you a little bit clearer of a roadmap as to whether or not this was substance-induced or not. Uh, you may never know for certain, and you have to be able to tolerate a little bit of that ambiguity. It is incredibly important, I think this is a good recommendation in general, 
to maintain a calm demeanor and reassuring presence. Remember, overactivation of the amygdala means I don't want to come in and be really expansive and big. The way that I'm talking to you in this training is in no way the way that I would approach a client. It's much too energized. It's much too activated. I need to slow down when I'm working with a client so that they have time to process what I'm saying and they don't become overwhelmed. Keep in mind this idea of starting low and going slow. Starting low means start with non-provocative topics and gradually build in different types of coping skills that the individual is able to manage. Go slow, go at their pace, and don't take for granted the fact that your ability to function at a particular cognitive level is the same as that individual's. When you're working with individuals with psychotic disorders, uh, medication stabilization is critical. Uh, you you want to make sure that you are talking specifically about uh, initializing medication uh, and the importance of medication adherence. I want to teach specific skills, uh, but my best bet is to make sure that crisis intervention is available, psychiatric consultation is available, and that we are integrating the family as much as we're able to as appropriate. We're going to talk about structure and support in just a little bit, uh, and we'll kind of uh, put a bow on this with that conversation. With PTSD, uh, trust is critical, both a, a perceived and real trust. Uh, so that person needs to know that you are there to support them, that you are willing to listen to them, that you are not going to try to push them towards a particular goal or outpace them. Uh, initially, you want to limit your questions about details of trauma. If it's outside of your scope of practice, you want to focus on limiting questions about details of trauma uh, across the entirety of your interaction. Recognize specifically that trauma injures an individual's capacity for attachment. And in that injury, they may have turned to maladaptive coping mechanisms that feel safe, even if they're not. Things like uh, risky uh, relationships, things, things like uh, risky substance use. The establishment of trust is dependent upon that non-judgment that we talk about in motivational interviewing. Um, establishing that trusting relationship is a goal of treatment, not just a starting point. You have to continue to work on that throughout the time that you have with the individual. Uh, be aware of your own experiences of, of trauma and your own countertransference. Uh, help the client to understand the link between PTSD and substance use. Uh, provide psychoeducation about PTSD and substance use. And make sure that you're teaching coping skills. Coping skills for PTSD generalize to substance use. Uh, and what we know from research is that if you just treat the substance use, you'll see an alleviation of substance use symptoms only as long as that person is in treatment. And then they'll come back. If you treat the PTSD, you'll get a reduction in PTSD symptoms as well as a reduction in substance use symptoms. Uh, so I want to be cognizant of this need for both SUD assessment and trauma assessments. How do you determine if symptoms are substance-induced or not? Uh, sustained abstinence is one of the best ways to determine that. It takes time to achieve that, and it takes time to maintain that. Relapse during that period of time is likely in part of recovery. And so it may be difficult to figure out for a sustained period of time whether or not these are substance-induced symptoms or otherwise. You might notice that psychotic symptoms occur as a symptom of intoxication or withdrawal. 
psychotic or psychotropic medications can also mimic symptoms of mental health uh, or substance use disorder. If you combine recreation or illicit substance use with that, or recreational substance use, it further muddies the waters as we've talked about. So what do we mean by perceived trust? Yeah, that's the idea that even if you haven't established real trust, where the person is completely open with you, where the person is completely comfortable with you, that you are acting in a way that cultivates or presumes that this is a trusting and safe relationship. Uh, and essentially what we're talking about there is that it takes time to build, build that real trust. And it takes time to understand that even if you have real trust with someone, they're not going to be completely open with you. And so as a provider, I want to, uh, I want the person to perceive that they are in a trusting interaction. Um, and part of that might be being upfront about things like mandated reporting and, and what other types of information you may have to disclose. Uh, you can still maintain that while creating an atmosphere of perceived trust. The rapport building phase, absolutely, but I, I think about rapport building as occurring through the entirety of treatment, uh, that it's, it's critical initially before we can get into the work, but I'm always thinking about building rapport. I'm always thinking about maintaining trust. Uh, I'm always thinking about if there is a rupture in that trust or rapport, how do I continue to build uh, this perception of trust between the two of us or between myself and the group? That's good. So the rapport building phase, true, yeah, uh, but I think about that phase as lasting the entirety of treatment. Here are our timelines that make this a little bit difficult. Uh, Cocaine-induced hallucinations or depression may linger even after abstinence has been established. Alcohol-induced depression can last six months or longer if someone has been drinking heavily for many years. And meth-induced psychosis or depression can last for several months or longer. I've seen scenarios where people have continued to experience psychosis or depression years after they discontinued use. There is no set time frame for how long these symptoms last, which further creates that diagnostic challenge. What we need to do is we need to be comfortable with the ambiguity of not necessarily knowing exactly what is causing what. Instead, we need to work in a, a treatment team to discuss the diagnostic challenges and address those as appropriate. Uh, you may not know the exact etiology of what's causing the symptoms. For example, prescription meds to reduce cravings and tr treat hallucinations or depression symptoms may be useful and they may be managing some of those symptoms, but if you're not aware of what meds somebody is on, you may be thinking that either there's an alleviation of symptoms or maybe the person has returned to their use. Uh, communication is key and thorough assessment is key. Um, I'm gonna go over CBT and MI really quickly, but this is not a CBT or an MI training. And so what I'm gonna try to do is I'm gonna try to pack as much of my recommendation for how to approach co-occurring disorder treatment into the next few minutes that we have, and then I'll, I'll talk about some additional resources that you might be able to, to pursue. Um, <clears throat> it may be important to think about reducing substance use, not necessarily just because, as Sebastian talked about, that somebody could handle it, but rather we're starting to gain any momentum that is possible. So I don't need to come in and preach total abstinence, unless that's a cornerstone of my program that I'm part of. Uh, I can talk about how the person might move towards some success to build self-efficacy, uh, related to their goals, if that's simply getting some, some momentum in reducing use. When you're beginning treatment and during early recovery, people often feel worse before they feel better. This idea that the brain can heal, that it's neuroplastic, 
is great news, but it's going to take a little bit of time to get there. A lot of the research shows that people experience ongoing cognitive impairment that sometimes gets worse following discontinuation of use for a period as long as six months. That's a long time to sit in that type of discomfort. So part of this engagement strategy, part of this education strategy is not just me saying, here's what you need to do to feel better. It's me creating that trust as we talked about. This might get worse before it gets better. I'm going to stick with you as much as I can. I'm here to support you. And I, I want you to know that I recognize that there are going to be some days where it feels way worse than other days. Uh, and I, I want us to be able to work together in managing those particular times. Establish that trust, but do it in a way that anticipates that this isn't going to be an easy pathway, that they're going to feel like they want to use again, that they're going to feel worse. And your role there is to support them through that. You know that it's going to come up. Help them anticipate it as well. Change the way that you do treatment. Uh, so if you typically do your normal therapy hour of 45 to 50 minutes, especially if you're doing it over Zoom, if you're doing telehealth right now, break up that session a little bit. Do shorter sessions on multiple days. Uh, have them take breaks in between. Uh, I typically think about, and if anybody who attended the CBT session uh, wants to add in any information about this, I tend to think about breaking a session into three parts, into thirds. You have three distinct parts that you organize yourself around for your session. The first third of the session is asking the person about their week and then asking about whatever homework you assigned to them. The middle third of the session is teaching a new skill, going over a worksheet, talking to them about some sort of, of activity or intervention or, or practice that they can build for themselves that helps with their recovery, that helps maintain uh, some sort of coping. The last third of the session should be focused on generalizing that skill to be used outside of session and then assigning homework to them. I assign homework every session, ultimately because it's not all that important whether or not the person does it, it's more important that I do it regularly. Structure, predictability, and consistency are going to be your best tools in managing co-occurring disorders. Structure, predictability, and consistency. When you are structured, and when you're predictable, and when you're consistent, meaning you know what you're gonna be saying, you tell the person what you're gonna say, and then you actually follow through on what you say you're going to do, it actually builds prefrontal cortex functioning. It enhances and strengthens connections in the prefrontal cortex if you are structured, if you are predictable, and if you are consistent you know your clients benefit from that and you know that their lives are not structured, they're not predictable and they're not consistent in a number of different ways. So what we're actively trying to do is we're trying to model, to shape, to impart that type of, of skill every time we meet with them. Part of that is structuring your session but also allowing for breaks in between uh, those different thirds. Repeat content. Make sure that you're reinforcing content regularly because just because you went over something once doesn't mean that it's consolidated for that individual. Uh, and present things in different ways. Think about audio, visual, using videos, presenting things uh, visually with, with art or representations of it rather than just words. Using memory aids is also really important. A lot of clients I, I know will are likely to have a smartphone. Uh, I know that when we 
have done these trainings in the past when we started doing these people were like well i work with homeless individuals and they don't have smartphones they have smartphones uh people are more likely to have smartphones that have some sort of data enabled capability than they are to have a desktop computer and you can use that to your benefit uh, make sure that you are providing immediate feedback on what they're doing well and how they're doing it. If you're giving them instructions, put things in writing and make sure that you give short, direct instructions. Um, I'm not going to go over these three different uh, treatment approaches in detail because we have trainings that cover all of these in, in way more detail. But I, I would recommend thinking about developing a treatment plan that looks at incorporating medications for substance use issues, uh, things like Vivitrol. <clears throat> MI is a really effective intervention for co-occurring severe mental health as well as substance use issues. And then CBT, I am a huge proponent of. If you have had MI training before, this will make sense to you. If you haven't, I recommend that you, you obtain MI training at some point. And if you got it a while ago, take a refresher course because MI is a great way to do that rapport building that we talked about. Uh, when you're thinking about applying MI for individuals with co-occurring disorders, keep your questions concise. Uh, make your open-ended questions effective, but short. So tell me a little bit about how your cocaine use has impacted your depression, and what are some of the things that you've been doing to manage the functional impairments that, that this induces when you're at work and when you're at home? Is not a good question to ask somebody with co-occurring disorders. It's technically an open-ended question but it's a bad open-ended question. You can ask four or five or six different questions out of that one question. Don't be so invested in hearing yourself talk. Let the person respond to you. I know that's a little bit ironic coming from somebody who's been talking at you for like three hours, uh, but slow down and let them think about your question and what they're going to respond with uh, using short, concise, open-ended questions. Uh, Co-occurring training that focuses specifically on adolescents. Um, yes, I have a resource that I can think about. Uh, let me get to that after I go through this and, and we'll see, um, see where we end up with that. I'll try to incorporate that into my uh, recommendations. That's good. Okay. Uh, with affirmations, research shows that individuals with co-occurring disorders really respond well to affirmations more so than individuals without co-occurring disorders. I'm guessing because of the challenges and the stigma from COD, they probably aren't getting a lot of affirmations in their life. And so use affirmations, but use them specifically and effectively. With reflections, I think reflections are good, but again, you don't wanna use overly complex and wordy reflections. You wanna keep it concise and focus on, on uh, where you wanna draw that person's attention. I'm not expecting somebody who is in the midst of a cocaine binge and they're coming down from that and they're experiencing some depression symptoms to reflect deeply on a reflection that I, I offer them, but rather I'm using that to punctuate our conversation, almost like short summaries. I think the decisional balance is also really great uh, for individuals with co-occurring disorders. If you can't ask them all four of these questions, Ask them, what are some of the good things about your use? What are some of the not so good things about their use? It gives you a sense of their recognition of that ambivalence. And it's a really quick conversation that won't overwhelm the individual cognitively. In terms of CBT, plan ahead. Uh, if you're not somebody that likes worksheets, 
find some way to use worksheets, find some way to plan out what you're going to be doing session to session, uh, especially with co-occurring disorders. I know that there's a lot that comes up unexpectedly. Have a plan going in. So worst case scenario, you abandon your plan to address whatever crisis of the week or crisis of the day there is. But at the very least, if you have a plan going in, you can start to impart some continuity between sessions. Uh, and it'll take time for that person to integrate that. But it is incredibly helpful in cultivating and strengthening that prefrontal cortex functioning. Um, I like contextual analyses. I like thought records. I like using these not just as like a pro and con list, but to map out what somebody has been doing and what they're thinking. Uh, so think about using structured mechanisms like that. Uh, I'm going to leave you with my six recommendations for working with COD, and then I'll talk about some resources. Six things that I want to focus on when I'm planning a COD treatment plan or interventions. First of which is I want to use motivational enhancement that is consistent with the individual stage of change. So wherever they are, I want to aim to enhance their motivation just a little bit more. Second one is I want to use contingency management techniques, so specific behavioral reinforcers that will address targeted behaviors. Contingency management sometimes looks like providing a voucher uh, to get something at the store that the organization has or reducing the cost of treatment. You don't necessarily have to do that. You don't have to give your client money for doing things that they did well. But is there a way that I can reinforce their successes? Something that's a little bit more tangible. Maybe it's a certificate that says, congratulations, you completed this part of what we're talking about. Uh, it gives people something to hold on to that acknowledges their progress, which is really, really impactful uh, when we're talking about this kind of, of functional impairment. Uh, use CBT and use CBT specifically. So I'm not talking about just challenging thoughts and cognitions. I'm talking about the behavioral component of structure, predictability, consistency, repetition. Use relapse prevention techniques, um, things like coping skills, uh, things like uh, identifying triggers, things like enlisting other um, members in the household or in the, the uh, community to assist when the individual is feeling like they might be at risk of relapse. Use repetition, build skills through things like role play, uh, through modeling different skills, and then facilitate client participation in adjunctive services or community support groups. Things like AA, NA, um, even if they're linked to uh, community groups. Uh, I know that some groups have like parenting groups or church groups that support this idea of recovery. That is beneficial to support your message outside of treatment. Let's talk about some resources. Uh, tip 42 goes through substance use treatment for co-occurring disorders. It expands upon what we talked about here. I have some other recommendations for you. Um, if you're looking at working with adolescents, the Cannabis Youth Treatment Series, I'll try to put this in the chat. These are all SAMHSA-approved evidence-based practices, by the way. Cannabis Youth Treatment Series, CYT, um, is a four-manual book that incorporates families in addressing cannabis issues with children or adolescents. Uh, it's specifically related to cannabis, but the skills generalize to other substances and other mental health uh, conditions. And so that's a starting place that I would look for. And none of these, you don't have to go through special training to use components of these. I would recommend it, um, but you can find these resources online and pull out some of the worksheets, pull out some of the resources. 
CYT Cannabis Youth Treatment Series is one of them. Uh, illness Management and Recovery is another one. It's a comprehensive workbook that looks at addressing co-occurring mental health and substance use issues, as well as building um, daily life skills. And this can be applied by mental health professionals as well as non-mental health professionals uh, because it's all behaviorally based and it's really, really structured. And then the last one that we tend to use in our um, CBT trainings is Matrix. And uh, the Matrix Treatment Manual is available on the SAMHSA web store. Uh, again, you're not going to go through that step by step, but it is worthwhile to think about pulling out some worksheets from that so that you can stay structured, so that you can stay um, consistent as you plan out session by session what you're going to do, even if it doesn't end up working out that way, because I know that clients tend to have their own ideas of where they want to go uh, whenever you show up. So those are some of the resources that I would take a look at that are a starting point for um, evidence-based treatments that address uh, co-occurring disorders. Um, and, and again, if you have other questions, I'm happy to have conversations outside of this training uh, where you might need additional support. Thank you for the work that you're doing. I know it's particularly difficult right now with all the challenges of COVID. Uh, it is important work. It is valuable work. I'm glad we have this chance to, to interact in this way. And I hope to see you all on another training soon. Thank you all very much.